Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. We're heading back to the links this week. We are going to preview the PGA Championship, the first golf major of the year, coming up this weekend from Thursday to Sunday at TPC Harding Park out in San Francisco. I'm going to be joined by our golf correspondent, Dandy Martini. He works the PGA Tour. Catch a little bit on what's going on at the Tour since we last spoke back in May. They have had a successful restart First major of the year. We'll get a preview of that as well. Also joining me today, the great Pete Casadori is doing pop culture this week. We're going to talk about the mini golf uh, theme game show, Holy Moly. A lot of fun. Very silly. Very goofy stuff. Pete and I had a lot of fun with that. We'll check that out in a bit. Make sure you locked in at the end of the show with the return of a two-minute drill for the first time since, I want to say, February. Wow. It's been a while for that. But we're going to talk, I guess, to talk about the latest day of Metitude, if you'll put it. And Sunday was Mets disaster to the finest. But we'll get it all started with this week's opening tip with the latest on MLB's handling of its first major COVID crisis right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here. Alright, we are back here. This week's opening tip. The MLB COVID crisis continues and things have been dicey. I mean, we heard at the end of last week, remember we talked to this podcast, the bonus episode last week, our legal guy Phil Freyetta, breaking down all the breakdowns in the MLB COVID protocols. We got to the point where we have a second outbreak on our hands, the St. Louis Cardinals. There was talk that the league might shut down as soon as Monday because the players are not taking the protocol seriously enough. And it did not get that far. Rob Manfred told Carl Ravitch, like, uh, privately, I'm not a quitter. We're going to keep going. The players have to adhere to the protocol better. But we still have a mess on our hands. The season is still going. The Phillies are back in action today. They're going to New York, take on the Yankees, make up those four games. The Marlins back tomorrow against Baltimore, playing four games in three days with basically a bevy of replacements. But the Cardinal situation, again, shows how perilous this is because... The first time you have outbreaks in the East and the Central. The East outbreak had six teams shut down. Six basically had their schedules impacted by this. We are up to three already because the Bre- the Cardinals, obviously themselves, the Brewers who were playing at the weekend off, and the Tigers lost at least Monday, maybe longer. The Cardinals tests com- keep coming back with some positives. The issue you're running into here, this is like, at what point is the legitimacy of this season being completely compromised if you decide to keep playing. The idea of a Major League Baseball season is you play every day, you play like multiple days in a row, and you build up momentum that way, and the teams that play, you all play the same schedule, you figure out quickly who the best teams are, who the worst teams are, and then you play it out to weed out 
the red teams of the best of the best emerge. We are sitting here on Monday, August 3rd, and we have teams that play three games. We have teams that play 10. That is absurd at this point. The Marlins are going to return to action basically with a B, with a C squad because they had to got to find 18 guys off of their alternate site team and the scrap heap in order to fill the roster out. That's not great. The Phillies, who really did nothing wrong, have been out a whole week, and now they're going to be basically have their players try to ramp up again. And for some of those times, they've been quarantined in hotels, so they couldn't even get to the field again until Saturday. That's not great. The bigger concern with how baseball handling is is the complete invisibility of Commissioner Rob Manfred in this. And since this whole Marlins mess started, he has made exactly one public appearance. One. That was an interview on MLB Network. The as I as I joked, it's the state sponsored media. He did an interview with Tom Reducci on Monday. He has not been seen since. In the meantime, we have all these confusing messages coming out from the media about this is what happened with the Marlins test today. This is what happened with the Cardinals test today. This is what going on with the Phillies. The Cardinals tests are inconclusive. They might have three positives. They might have six. We don't know. And we don't know when anybody's playing. The Yankees, they might be playing on Tuesday. They might be playing on Monday. They might be playing in Philly. They might be playing in the Bronx. No one knows anything. All we get is a generic state from MLB like basically every day. And most of it has been leaked out ahead of time to reporters like Jeff Passan, John Heyman, Bob Nightingale, you name it. This is not how a leader should be acting in this situation. This sport is in crisis and the commissioner is in hiding and his one vague statement that Carl Ravage about how I'm not a quitter, the players have to do better. It's complete garbage. A lot of this mess started because MLB and its infinite wisdom decided, you know what, we're going to let the Marlins with four known positive cases play baseball. That's not great. And as a leader, you cannot hide from that fact. You have to own up to it. The... Lack of clarity, the complete confusion in this game is going on right now. Don't think players aren't noticing. Lorenzo Cain opted out on Saturday, and he did say, you know what, like, I don't feel great about this anymore. I have family issues. not going to risk this. The more Rob Manfred is hiding in his bunker in Chelsea, not addressing the concerns of the fans and the players especially. The players, because they are the ones who are dealing with this, not the owners. The owner's risk is purely financial. The player risk is completely physical as well because they're the ones getting on the fields they're the ones traveling they're the ones taking the buses and the airplanes to get the cities to cities it is inexcusable that Rob Manfred has not appeared publicly since this crisis started he was perfectly willing to take a victory lap on ESPN opening night say you know what like A-Rod say commissioner you did a great job with these protocols the protocols are broken the players are not following them well enough you have not done a good job emphasizing how important they are because, I mean, in the opening week, we saw guys high-fiving, spitting, not wearing the mess in the dugout, sitting right next to each other in the dugout. It got a point where the Dodgers are self-policing themselves. And where is Rob Manfred? Putting out statements. The great Lindsay Adler on Twitter of The Athletic pointed out that the last time Rob Manfred actually held a public press conference is on February 16th. Why is that day significant? That's when... Spring training started, and he was talking about the BS positives he gave out for the Astros scandal, and he was basically scolding reporters for questioning his authority. This is not a dictatorship, uh, Commissioner. You need to be out in front of this. One of the great success stories of the coronavirus crisis was Governor Cuomo in New York, who before this was not very popular. He was not loved in this state. What made him grow in popularity? He got out there every day from the media and said, okay, here's what we know. Here are the numbers. 
Here's what we need to do going forward. I'm not saying Rob Manfred has to go out there every day, but releasing a statement is not enough. Letting the PR department do this and simply leaking things to reporters so you have conflicting misinformation is not enough. You should be out there and say, okay, even for like 20 minutes, we have to record a video say, here's what's going on with the Marlins. Here's what's going on with the Phillies. Here's where you are at the schedule. Here's what's coming next. Take a couple of questions and leave. That is not difficult. It is an abdication of responsibility as a leader to completely vanish when your sport is going up in flames. And he is obviously the worst commissioner in sports. Rob Manfred needs to improve his handling of this. Do the players need to be better with the protocols? Yes, they do. But at the same time, the commissioner cannot pass the buck here. This is something that these two sides both have to blame themselves for because they spent months and months and months bickering about money and I want prorated pay. We can't pray you prorated pay. Baseball is not profitable. Meanwhile, you rush through the safety concerns of this, which, by the way, if you're playing through a pandemic, that should have been done first. Not the fight over the money. Instead, you have these teams rushing through the protocols. Some are doing it better than the others. I mean, the Cubs have had nothing happen positive for them. No positive tests, which is great. Mets have done pretty well. The Marlins have been a disaster. The Cardinals now, we don't know yet how they got so many people infected in a short span of time, but... Whatever you came up with, this was your baby too. This is your responsibility. You deem protocols that were insufficient have to be amended on the fly. And now we're talking about things like expanding the roster to 30 for the whole season, seven-inning double-headers to try and make up all these games that got lost because one team got infected. It's just a mess. And the commissioner is nowhere to be found. Rob, this is horrendous leadership. You need to be out in front of this. You need to speak to the press at least once or twice a week and say, okay, here's where we are. Here's what's going on, and this is what is working, this is what's not, and here's how we're going to fix what's not working. In a sport like this, that's where the players can opt out whenever they want. You need to be more accountable than you are, and this has been a disgrace of the show like Ron Manfred. And speaking of disgraces real quick, I'm going to go to the NFL for one second here because they have been skating by in the background. Again, training camps are opening up. They have their procedures in there. They built an opt-out period in for players who are concerned to opt out basically get a $150,000 advance if they are low risk or not at high risk of contracting COVID. There are 350000 high risk opt-out categories not counted as a salary advance. The contract's told for a year. Okay, that's all good. The NFL is probably not expecting any players to opt out as they've had. We have over 30 who've opted out already. And you've got some big names in there. Giant left tackle Nate Solder opted out because his son has been battling cancer. Not smart for him to do this, which is the right call. The Jets linebacker CJ Mosley opted out. He's got a high-risk family member. Good job on CJ. Not sure his family's taken care of. You have about eight Patriots who opted out, including starters on defense like Dante Hightower and Patrick Chung. You've also had Eagles wideout Marquise Goodwin opt out because he has had a newborn and he doesn't want to risk get the baby getting sick. All reasonable things. Why is the NFL's response to all this? They are trying to move up the opt-out deadline. Originally, the plan was that this was going to be set once the League and the Players Association agreed to a side letter of the CBA to officially declare the rules of the 2020 season would be a week from then. That has not been finalized yet. So basically, they were talking like, okay, around August 7th, we're going to have the opt-out window. As of recording, the they are trying to push the opt-out window up to either tomorrow, August 4th, or Wednesday, August 5th. 
because clearly they are terrified that more players are going to opt out and delegitimize their product. You are asking these men who are playing a sport that is much more prone to coronavirus spread than baseball is. Baseball, we see the risk on the field is not the biggest deal. The Phillies have had no players test positive, like playing on the, all weekend with the Marlins who had multiple positive players and didn't know it yet. The risk in football is massive because you're right next to each other. There's tackling every play. There's no such thing as social distancing. And you're playing, you're practicing against each other every day. You are taking a very important decision for these guys and asking them to rush it because you're worried about diluting your product. Shameful by the NFL. And with that, let's hope that these sports start handling this better, the ones that are not in the bubbles. But up next, we're going to go to our PGA Championship preview with Dandy Martini right after this. This is just going to validate what I think most people knew. He's the number one player in the game. All right, we are back here on the podcast talking golf this week for the first time since we did the return of golf special here back, I think, in late May. Join me, as always, every talk about golf on this podcast. He works for the PGA Tour. The great Dan Martini is here. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Happy to be back. Happy to, uh, you know, had a, have a summer full of golf and uh, a lot more to look forward to uh, throughout the rest of 2020. Yeah, it definitely has been the summer of golf. I will say that. Give me, I have not been as on top of the results after, I mean, since the other sports are starting to come out. Like, I'll admit I've lost track of golf a little bit. Can you give me the update on how things have been going? You know, it's been really interesting. Um, there are a lot of guys out there who have taken advantage of this quick return to play. Um, the ones that are out there grinding to kind of make their name are taking advantage of it on the leaderboard. Guys like Victor Hovland, Colin Morikawa, um, you know, heck, even Bryson DeChambeau with his, you know, revised body type, um, the upgraded version of Bryson. Um, you know, these are the guys that are out there. They're playing almost every tournament since we've been back. And, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that, you know, some of these other guys, the top stars, you know, DJ's dealing with, you know, an injury. And, you know, obviously Brooks has been dealing with an injury since last fall. And, you know, there are some guys out there, Tiger's taking his time, only playing a couple events. Um, you know, Rory we haven't seen now uh, in a couple weeks as well. So, you know, the, all I can say is that the guys that are out playing consistently, grinding right now on the PGA Tour are, uh, are finishing consistently at the top. Um, what you've missed really is, is a few young guys, like I mentioned, and a couple of oldie but goodies. Um a guy who I've, I've known since I got into the PGA Tour and golf business uh, back in 2013, uh, Michael Thompson won this past week at 3M uh, in Minnesota. And here's a guy who is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And, you know, he's had some success um, at the past, specifically at the Honda Classic. Uh, but it's been a few years, and he's he's been fighting to keep his card and, you know, barely make cuts and, and just get enough through. And he, he did not give up on his game and it all clicked together for him this past week. So this summer has been kind of for the, for the golf enthusiasts and the, and the people that love these deep cut stories. Um, the last few weeks have been, have been really nice. Um, 
But obviously the biggest story of the summer and the return to PGA Tour golf has been Bryson DeChambeau. And, you know, all of the sports writers that um, cover golf have been have been really, uh, I mean, you can't, you type his name into Google right now. And I mean, all you'll get is, uh, you know, how Bryson is changing the game of golf. Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. Let's go there next. I got the Bryson DeChambeau experience. Basically, he's gotten super jacked and he's, playing some of the best golf of his career. Tell us a little bit about what Bryson DeChambeau has done and some of his some of his results. Yeah, you know, so so for those that haven't followed it so closely, you know, Bryson is, was a completely decorated amateur player, um, had some pretty decent success early on in his career on the PGA Tour. He was always known as kind of the guy that was looking at golf and trying to figure out a way to, you know, almost use math and, and use statistics uh, to his advantage to try to find ways to cut down on shots and cut down on, you know, all of the issues with strokes lost based off of where he's hitting the ball and, and distance measurements. So the big thing with him was that everybody knew him as the guy that wore the little caddy hat, the little Puma golf hat, uh, but also that he all he played with all of his golf clubs the same exact length. Normally you have some variation between the length of your pitching wedge versus your longer irons and then obviously your driver, but he played the same uh, length all the time, which is kind of unusual. So not only are you now compiling the fact that he's looking at the game from more of a, a mathematical lens, um, and he has a very unusual setup in his, his equipment, but now he decides over this, you know, the last few months that we've been off, to pack on, you know, 30 to 40 pounds of weight. Some people call it muscle. Some people just call it pure mass. Um, And he really has, um, you know, just put on enough weight where it is, I mean, it's staggering what he's done. Bryson obviously won at uh, Rocket Mortgage um, a few weeks back. And while he was there at Rocket Mortgage, I think I saw the statistics. He set the all-time PGA Tour record for the longest average driving distance for a winner of an event. I think he passed Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods. He was averaging 350 yards a drive during that tournament, which is insane. I like to think that I, for an average golfer, can hit the ball pretty decent off the tee, and I would probably be in the 275 to maybe 285 range. And, I mean, he's driving at 350 yards. It's insane. On tour this year alone, he's averaging almost 330 yards a drive. He's going to, by far, just changing the way golf is played because what he has figured out, Mike, is that if the longer that you hit it off the tee, yes, you're bringing in more variables in the fact that you could be driving into what you can't see ahead. But the guys that are shorter drivers, um, they're the ones not only dealing with missed fairways, but they're also then having to hit longer approaches that that you can't control. During Rocket Mortgage, Bryson was not only hitting the ball so far, but his short wedges, he would be driving at 350, and then he would only have like a 90-yard shot into most greens. And if you're a PGA Tour player, you'd much rather, you know, you have such good touch and feel around the greens that 100 yards or less, compared to somebody who's still 170 yards in the fairway, you're going to be able to put it way closer to the hole 
and he was. He was sticking those 100-yard shots in, and I, I, it was just something that we had never really seen before. Now, naturally, with that being said, there was a lot of controversy. Um, people thinking that this is you know, and good for him. He put in the hard work. He gained the weight. He's worked on his swing speed. There's a great viral video of him swinging. Um, just insane practice sessions. Um, if you type in Bryson practice swing speed, I mean, it's crazy how hard he swings into a net. Um, but, you know, it, it also brings up this age-old debate of a lot of the older, more traditional golfers uh, and commentators think that the ball is now traveling too far. You can't keep making the courses and the tee boxes longer. You have to, <clears throat> at some point, excuse me, you have to make it so that the ball doesn't travel as far maybe 80 to 85 percent of what it currently is driving because you know a 300 yard drive is is plenty of distance these guys are driving it an extra 50 most par fours are only 450 yards 420 yards some are even less so you're talking about guys just just kind of taking irons out of the game you're going from a driver to a wedge and is that really that challenging so I, I think, in my personal opinion, I think what he's doing is great. He's, he's not doing anything wrong. He's um, a competitor. He put in the hard work. And this is how the rules are currently set up. And, you know, other guys, I don't see too many other guys being able to pack on 40 pounds of, of mass and, and work as hard as he did to increase his swing speed. Um, a lot of guys are just playing golf the way it's been played, and Bryson has got a competitive edge. So I don't blame him for it. Yeah, I don't either. He's taking advantage of the system that's in here. He's going to head out to TPC uh, Harding this week to try and win a major here. So tell me about the TPC Harding. Tell me how it plays. Sure. So TPC Harding Park is an interesting course because, as you know, some of your listeners might know this, you know, it's technically a municipal course. Um, it's in a state park in San Francisco, California. It's part of the TPC network. So just like you hear, you know, TPC Sawgrass, TPC Southwind, where they're currently playing the WGC FedEx Invitational, St. Jude Invitational this week. Um, it's part of the TPC network. Um, it is, anybody can go out and play. Uh, it is a really interesting course because uh, it's hosted several events in the past some of which you may remember. So in the probably the most notable ones, there was a President's Cup there in 2009. Tiger had a pretty dominant performance back then in 2009 to win it for the U.S. Um, and Rory McIlroy, just a few years ago, the WGC Dell match play was played out there at Harding Park, and Rory just caught fire, um, beat Jim Furyk in the semifinals, and then beat uh, Gary Woodland in the finals. So... It's, ha- it's hosted a couple, you know, sizable events. It's also hosted a few PGA Tour Champions events. What I have heard uh, from, you know, various people that I interact with around just course setup, maintenance, things like that, I'm hearing that this is going to play incredibly difficult and that the way that courses have been attacked so far on tour this season, this is going to be a big, big change for them uh, with it being really the first major outside of the players championship. So what I'm hearing is that this course, basically the normal width of the fairways will be almost half of what would 
be available to the public. Say you played this, you know, six, seven, eight months ago, um, maybe even less. Uh, I'm hearing that they have completely grown the rough out almost to the point where if you drop a ball greenside, your ball completely disappears. So, I mean, if you're not hitting the, the fairway and then sticking it on these greens, which we all know will be blazing fast because major championships, they're not known for having soft greens. Um, they're going to be super, super hard. You're going to be hitting from really difficult lies. So, I mean, but just hearing that, I mean, the, the ball will literally disappear greenside means that it, I'm a little bit more worried about the guys who are hitting it pretty carelessly off the tee right now. Uh, the course is going to play tough. Uh, and I love when they make a major championship, a big-time event, or any PGA Tour event for that matter, on a course that the general public can play. Because then you're going to get a lot more intrigue to say, hmm, what would I do on this hole if you know I was in the same spot as them? It, it just brings the game back down to a level for you know all the golf purists out there. Yeah, that's true. And the two-time champion, right, reigning champion there is Brooks Kepka. And what do you make of his chances out of TPC Harding this year? You know, it's really it's going to be interesting. You know, Brooks is in a really tough scenario. He uh, he had a good showing uh, a couple months ago at, at the RBC Heritage. Um, he finished in the top ten, but other than that. You know, going back all the way to last fall, the fall of 2019, you know, if you look at the 10 events, he's only made six cuts, and his next best finish is a tie for 32 at Colonial when we the first event back after the COVID break. So, and, and a lot of that stems from the fact that, you know, he had this, this considerable injury. Uh, he had, you know, some sort of a stem cell treatment in his knee, uh, and he just hasn't really been able to find his game just yet. It's a little worrisome to me, Mike. I, I, I Look, the guy, last year, if we go back to last year's podcast, I didn't think that he would win back-to-back. I was, you know, I said that he'd be in the mix. I, I don't know. I, I said it was hard to pick against him, but I had a few others in mind that I had as favorites. This year, but that was mainly because Brooks, if you go back and look at 2019, he also had a few really good showings. He did well at the Masters. He had a couple of other top 10 finishes kind of leading up to the PGA Championship. So his game was much more informed, and he had played more events leading up to the PGA Championship last year. So he was more primed to have success there. This year, I, I just don't see enough. I think we're going to get more of a surprise winner at the PGA Championship this year. Um, And I just don't think his game is where he wants it, consistently driving it off the tee, sticking greens in regulation with his long irons, and then the way he's been putting. It just doesn't seem like it's all together right now. And it's just because I don't think he has played enough competitive rounds to be ready. Yes, he's one we're not sure about his chances. Another guy who's always intrigued to talk about at the majors is Tiger Woods. Obviously, first, he only really played like one event as of recording time to get ready for the PGA Championship. What do you think of Tiger's chances out there? You know, look, once again, here's another event that's basically in Tiger's backyard. You know, you're in Northern California. Um, He understands how, uh, you know, courses are set up in California. And 
uh, he understands that brand of golf. For, for people who play a lot of golf and travel around, you know that the grass out in California is very different from the grass you get in Florida versus New York. So, or in, you know, where we've been for a lot of the summer on the PJ Tour in, in the Ohio area. So it's all, it's a different brand of golf. Um, it obviously, um, suits Tiger. You know, he won an event there. I believe it was in 2005. There used to be a, a WGC event that was there and you know, he won that event. Uh, at TPC Harding Park. And he also played, as I said earlier, amazing in the 2009 um, uh, President's Cup. So in the two times we've really seen him at Harding Park, he's played great. Now, that's a long time ago. We're talking, you know, 11 years, really. So I don't know exactly what to expect out of Tiger. Um, but, you know, from a game standpoint, I think that his driver has shown a lot more consistency in terms of giving himself a chance to score. Has he been putting it great? Not so much. Tiger really has success. He needs to show right from the start that he can get a good momentum going, you know, be two, three, four under, and avoid those blow poles. If he can go out and have like a bogey-free, you know, two or three under round to get going, even if he's not in the lead, that's the Tiger that I want to see. He's got to build confidence early on Thursday and Friday uh, for me to really believe that Tiger's got a chance come Sunday. So that's just where I'm at with him right now. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of good, and then his, his bad is not, it's not as much as the good, but when his bad hits, it really hurts him, and uh, he goes downhill quickly. Yeah, it's fair to, to see with Tiger here. We'll see how he does out there if he, as long as he's there. And let's talk about some guys who you like right now. Who are some guys you think can do well out there? Yeah, so so obviously there's there's a few guys that I've just been watching uh, this season. And, you know, I'm totally on board with, you know, as what I would say to people that um, are not necessarily favorites, but just people in my mind that have a really good chance. Obviously, John Rahm, uh, the, the Technically, he's number one right now in the world golf rankings. Everybody's saying that he's the next big name on the PGA Tour to win a major. I can't help but agree with him. His game, when he's on, he is he is super tough. And right now, since he won at Memorial, you know, I definitely would, would say that if I was betting, that that would be the guy that I would have at least some, some money down on. Um, I also like a couple other guys. I really like Webb Simpson. It seems like every time there's a PGA Championship or a big event, Webb Simpson's name finds its way into the top 10. You know, he obviously had already has a win this season at Heritage, so I like his chances as well. Uh, Gary Woodland is a guy who I think is playing really well. Just in general, I like his game, and obviously he played well enough to make it in 2015 all the way to the finals with McElroy. So I'm on board with Gary Woodland. And I just love Tommy Fleetwood. Um, I, I think that he is also in that category of John Rahm as the next guys to, with their game to win a major. I really hope he takes advantage of the fact that everybody is kind of discombobulated with the whole COVID break. And um, I know he played at 3M. And, um, you know, he's had some marginal success. Uh, in the last two years, I, I think that he could come out of nowhere. And if he gives himself a chance on Thursday, 
and starts hot and, and can get three, four under, then he's a name that I really, I really hope he gets a win because he's a good guy and he's got a great swing. He's really fun to watch, especially when they do those slow mos and you see how far he gets his head and he keeps his back leg straight. He really, he can really wail on the ball for not a big guy. So I'm on board with Tommy Fleetwood. Um, and you know, obviously Roy McIlroy, right? I mean, that's kind of the easy one to put out there. Um, this is the guy who has had, he's shown success on this course. He's had success this year so far. And in my mind, he's the guy to beat. So, you know, him and Rom are probably, I don't know what the, the betting lines are. Um, you know, Bryson's got to be up there too, but, um, and obviously Kepka would be there had he, had he not had the injury. Um, Justin Thomas, all of those guys, those are going to be kind of the betting favorites, but hopefully between, um, you know, Woodland and Simpson and Fleetwood, that gives, gives the listeners, if you're, if you're looking for some other, other places to bet, um, those are the guys that I, I would keep an eye out for. That sounds good to me. Let's go the other way. Who are a couple guys you might be fading a little bit? Sure. So, you know, and it's nothing, it's nothing against, you know, where, where they are. I just, from a game standpoint right now, um, you know, I'm okay saying, you know, I think that Jordan, Spieth, I, I think he'll do well, but I don't think he'll win. I still think he's trying to figure out and get his game. I think he's back to about 80% of where he was. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily love this course for Bubba if, if his driver isn't completely accurate. Uh, and the same for Phil Mickelson. Honestly, if I know Phil's a California guy and this course might set up well for him, but if he's not, I know he, everybody wants to bomb it out there. This course really sounds like you will be in terrible conditions if you are missing fairways. That's why I'm trying to lean on guys who right now are not only driving the ball far, but accurately into off the tee. So I would say Bubba, Jordan, and Phil are kind of the guys I might be fading on. And I do have a couple sleepers. You know, I know we always talk about some deep sleepers. Um, at least one guy, I'll give you a name, is Victor Hovland. Um, for those that are listening that don't know Victor, it's worth looking him up. He's kind of another one of these Colin Morikawa uh, type guys who have, have won some events. They've had some serious success. And if you look at what Hovland has done, he won the Puerto Rico Open earlier this year. He's got five top 25 finishes in his last six events, including a third place at Workday a few weeks ago at, at you know, Muirfield Village. So here's a, a young guy who's taking advantage of the fact that he can travel, play all these tournaments, get into the next field, and uh, his game has stayed very consistently strong since early this winter. So he has a lot of confidence. And, you know, I feel like if anybody's going to come out of nowhere and maybe have a top 10 finish, it could be it could be Victor Hoblin. That's good to know. Interesting thing here. And also of note here, this is interesting given the way the PGA Tour calendar is set up here. This right now, this is going to be the only major in the actual 2020 calendar year. Because obviously the year-end FedEx championships actually play out before the U.S. Open and the Masters are back on the calendar. So you're looking at one major counted in the standings this year and six next year plus the Olympics. Seems like a very unusual golf setup this year. It's incredibly different. Um, and, you know, our, we have an amazing team at the PGA Tour that constantly works through all of these scheduling 
qualifying conflict. Um, you can only imagine how difficult it is to put on these events, prepare for these events, uh, not knowing if at any given point, if a few players do test positive, it can completely cancel everything that you planned for for the last. I mean, people don't realize. I read an article that said TPC Harding Park alone, just for the PGA Championship, they've been preparing their course and their course setup for six years to get it ready to host a potential major. Now, they didn't have it know where it would be, but just to get it ready. And up until, you know, they were making preparations for grandstands and concessions and hospitality places. I mean, these are all of our tournaments um, are preparing months and months and months in advance. And there are memberships that are allowing these build outs. And, you know, it is, it is a huge traveling circus. And, you know, this situation that we're in right now, everybody is kind of sitting there, you know, trying to remain calm with everything, but we're also very diligent about making sure that if something does change, if there is an issue, how can we think through all possible scenarios? And that's why, um, even with all these other sports, like we've just been reading about this week with Major League Baseball having issues, you know, the tour is taking every possible precaution so that the investment that these courses, the investment that the sponsors and everybody is making to put on a great PGA Tour season works the best way possible. Is it strange that there's only one major championship? Sure. But next year and the year after, it's all going to work to the benefit to grow the game. There's going to be now even more heightened um, interest in golf because, you know, everybody is craving sports. It's like we've just been deprived of, you know, top competition for four months now. And everybody is just so badly wants it. And golf, we're in a great position with the FedEx Cup playoffs coming up. Because right as the Major League Baseball season continues on, hopefully, and and the NBA is just looking into their playoffs, you know, here comes three great weeks of, you know, four great weeks, if you include, you know, Wyndham leading into it to, to make the playoffs, is the FedEx Cup playoffs and, and leading right into Tour Championship, and then we start right over again. So it's going to be a great couple months. And, you know, everybody obviously is doing everything that they can to to get us to this point and um you know i i couldn't be more excited to see what happens through the tour championship and then to see how 2021 as a golf season comes together so it's a it's a interesting thing right we feel like we were kind of deprived a bit in 2020 but it, i honestly look at it away as we're still getting a great finish in 2020 and we're getting an even better year in 2021 all right, Dan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow on social media? Sure. You can follow me on Out of Town Fan Pod on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously at this point, we're all uh, excited. So I've been doing a little bit less tweeting about golf right now and a little bit more about kind of training camp getting open for the NFL because that's, and I know, Mike, you talk a lot about, you know, NFL and your podcast and whatnot. But that's the one sport that I'm still so curious about what's going to happen there and how are they going to possibly do this season? Because we knew Major League Baseball would figure it out at some point. We're still not sure if it's going to go through, but they kind of made their plan. The NBA obviously convinced themselves the bubble was going to work, and so far it has. But the NFL, it, I 
still I'm kind of curious how this is all going to go down and where they're going to kind of take their freedoms and letting some fans in and no fans here and no preseason. It seems like they're just kind of every week is a new story. So it's going to be really fascinating. So that's kind of what I'm grinding on social media-wise right now. Yeah, the NFL stuff is fascinating. Although I will call the league out for being complete hypocrites where basically in their player conduct thing when they said these, hey, you can't go to parties this year. You can't go to like music concerts. You can't go to sporting events. But it's not safe for the players, but we'll let all the fans in. That's where I say the NFL just looks completely hypocritical with that they value the buck over the lives of their fans. And it doesn't make it just doesn't make any sense because you can't control that, and nobody, not everybody's going to tell the truth on it. So you either have to go with the bubble, or you have to run or spend the money and have constant testing going on, and and hope that the players feel as though they are not shunned for stepping away if they don't feel safe or they have the option to. So I I really I understand the NFL is such a massive, um, you know, money generator. Uh, and, and there are so many more complicating factors um, because the players get so close to one another. It's very different from golf and very different from baseball. Um, and I know the bubble doesn't necessarily work for them like it does for the NBA, but the NFL has some still some really interesting things that they need to work through um, before we get going, whatever it is, September 13th, which is coming fast. Yeah. So it's yeah. going to be fun. Yeah, the NFL has had the benefit of time in their hands, but the time is running out. Now they bought themselves a little more by canceling the preseason, which no one needed anyway. But we will see what happens right. there. And we will get right. a little teaser in the hard, with Hard Knocks coming up soon with the Rams and the, and the Chargers. I think we'll get a little hint on what the new NFL normal might look like. Yeah. No, and I've, I've watched some of the stuff about what, the, what each facility looks like, and, and they're taking the right precautions. But what's going to happen that first Sunday? Um, across the NFL landscape and what does that look like and are there fans there and is it safe does anybody test positive on the Saturday right before the game and then they can't play those games and how do you postpone NFL games you know we could you could do it in baseball easily you're not going to play a double header in the NFL so it's going to be really really interesting to see how this works but anyway Mike it was good talking to you thanks for having me no problem. It's good talking to you. I mean, I'm going to pop culture next. My buddy Pete Considori. I know I'm going to throw out here. You and I are excited. Big the Big Brother All Star season coming soon. That's going to be a lot of fun. So I am totally in for that, and I am super excited to hear that. You know, obviously between Big Brother and Survivor, you know, obviously there's production halts and across all of TV. But at least we're going to be able to hang on, knowing that those two are still coming back. So I'm happy to. Happy to talk through that with you. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll check back in uh, whenever you need me. That sounds good. Have you ever heard of the ABC show Holy Moly? I have, and I've seen it twice, I believe. Yeah, well, so, that, that is where I'm going next on the podcast. I'm going to join my Pete concert. We're going to take a deeper <laughs> dive into that show right after this. We are back here doing a little bit of pop culture on the podcast, talking holy moly, since we are doing golf this week, 
Joining me today, you heard from him last week talk about the Rangers, but you do hear his voice every week in the intro and the outro of the podcast. The great Pete Costadori is here. Pete, how are you? That was so official. Yeah. That 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 whole bed you had there, that just made me feel so so important. Like I was part of pop culture like that. But yeah, no, I'm doing great. It's great to be back on. Always love coming on the podcast here. So uh, I'm excited to talk a little holy moly today. Yeah, it's also funny. Yeah, I played that bum. I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know what, like, that bum is the complete opposite of how seriously Holy Moly takes itself. Oh, 100%. <laughs> we talked 100%. About, yeah, we talked about it before. We talk, I think we did the hockey movie. You said you were watching this show. And I said, you know what? Like, this, this season is fun at Holy Moly. Let's, let's go a little deeper. I'll be honest with you. Season two, the sequel, a lot better than season one. I don't know if you watched season one. I but did. Season one was almost like the test run, if you will. And then they saw how much they can kind of get away with. Yeah. And I have to say, season two is, is phenomenal. Yeah, season one, it was basically, here's the formula. These are the holes. We always end on the same hole. Now, like, let's go nuts. Let's add more holes. Let's mix things up. Let's get, like, crazier, like, cryons in there. Like, add some more gags. It's a lot more fun. Right. I do think, like, it's I, I'm enjoying this a lot more because they sort of have built up their own little mythos, their own little running gags. I do enjoy all that, and I just... Oh, there's there's a, there's a ton of running gags. I mean, I, I, I suggest if you want to get into Holy Moly for the listeners out there, um, you know, I believe it's on, it's, I watch it on Hulu, but I don't know what other streaming services it may be on. Yeah. Um, however, I would watch it from the beginning of season two. You don't have to watch season one. Obviously the two seasons aren't going to correspond, but if you watch it from the first episode of season two, you'll get all the running jokes and you'll, you'll get the, the chemistry between Joe Tessitore and Rob Riggle. And, and it's just, uh, it's a, I have to say for a show that is not supposed to be serious, it's, it's very, very like eye-catching you you get sucked in because there's also a sport element to it as well yeah it also helps when for until last until we got baseball back we really had like no sports and then like this is sort of like i know it's wacky competition where people are getting like thrown in the water and they're getting hit with windmills mm-hmm. but like you're sitting there like man they gotta drill this putt like this is a lot of pressure oh oh yeah absolutely i mean at one of the holes they set people on literal fire yes. obviously they're safe they're wearing fire suits but they literally set people on fire and they're putting while on fire. I, I can't stress that enough. And, and uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, if I'm on fire trying to putt, I, the first thing I'm thinking of is this fire going to penetrate the suit and kill me. Yes, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not thinking about, am I going to hit this putt in two? So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, um, again, if you haven't watched this show, for the listeners out there, very unique, definitely give it a shot. Our episode, so if you watch it, uh, you stream it, it'll be about like 47 minutes and change, 46 yeah. minutes and change. Definitely a watch. Definitely a good watch. Yeah, you can catch up at a night in like a day if you want to. And I will say for the, the conceit for those who have not seen or did not hear Pete and I talk about it last time, combine a ridiculous mini golf course with Wipeout. That's holy moly. Yep. Yep. Wait, there, there is obstacle. I mean, it's not as intense of an obstacle course because Wipeout, that was the whole premise of it, right? It's, it's get through the obstacle course and you win. Or if you have the fastest time or if you stay on, you know, the, the platform long yep. enough, you win the round or whatever. This is hey, you know, you're playing golf, and if you mess up during these little activities we give you, you have a stroke penalty. Yeah. And it, it really, like, it really messes with people's games sometimes. It's really it's really a make-it-or-break-it moment if they don't complete the obstacle because they'll be down by one stroke and they'll lose just because they fell in the water one time or they, or they you know, didn't make, the, the, make it through the windmills on Dutch Courage or anything like that. Double Dutch Courage, I believe it's called. Yeah, the first season, it was Dutch Curse. Now it's double Dutch Curse. They had a second win, though. Yeah. Yeah. I love that hole. And what's your favorite part of the show? <sighs> it has to be the, the banter and the commentating. 
by Joe Tessitore and, and, and Rob Riddle. I think those two are a match made in heaven when it comes to uh, sport commentating. Obviously, Joe Tessitore is very um, relaxed on this show. Um, I believe he's commentated professional sports in the past, and that's how he got this gig because they thought he would be a good fit for it. Um, and uh, and Mike, you'll, you'll, you'll back me up on yep. this. His commentary is, is super analytical he he makes it sound like he's taking it seriously and then rob riggle will jump in and he'll make joe laugh and joe will start making jokes and they work really well together and it's just the one-liners the one one line zingers that come from those two probably make the whole show like that much better like if i was just watching it with like regular commentating i, I may not put it on every week i may just binge it at one point or say hey i want to see who wins or whatever but like it wouldn't be such a following for me if it wasn't for those two. So I, I have to say it's the announcing and the commentating by, by Robert Olinger and Seth Thor. Oh, absolutely. They've been fantastic. I do love their banter. It's great. And then, like, they've really expanded on giving them, like, bits. Like, there was an episode this season where Rob Ribble is just obsessed with Josh Dumel for the entire hour. And yes. it, was, it was dying laughing yes. at that. And Joe is like, I, I guess I'm doing this alone. And Rob is like creepily behind Josh Dumel, just like looking at him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they get Josh in the boot. I mean, it's, it, they have fun with it. That That's what radiates from this show, right? Yeah. Like sometimes you, you wish a commentator in professional sports would have fun with it, right? Yes, they understand they have to be professionals and they have to do their jobs and, and make it exciting for the team that you're watching, especially if it's a home crowd um, broadcast. You know, you have to make it sign for those fans. But, like, I, some of these guys, they got to lighten up a little bit, right? Like, yeah. they got to crack a joke every once in a while. And some commentators are good at that. You know, I, I can't name names because I've seen it once in the blue moon. And I, you know, I forgot who was doing it. But, like, you know, I'm sure an NFL broadcast or an NHL broadcast or MV broadcast would be, would be that much better if there was a little bit of relaxed kind of uh mood to it do your job make sure you're commentating everything that's why maybe hockey is a little bit harder because it's so fast-paced um but um still like give us give us a little entertainment as well you know yeah the two i thought of when you were talking about that doc emrick and tony romo in the nfl those are the two i think i just have so much fun with their jobs right so doc emrick you can just hear the passion in his yeah. voice i mean a lot of people that i speak to which is very odd don't like Doc Emmerich. And I and I can't understand why. Maybe it's the way his voice, you know, takes a yeah. shot. Like, I don't know yeah. how, if that's the part that annoys them or not. But the vocabulary and the history and the amount of knowledge that this man has, he he is the best hockey commentator I've heard ever. Like, I, I could probably make the argument that he's the best hockey commentator ever. I mean, he's just so iconic. Uh, you know, and, and he'll, he'll make the jokes and he'll laugh and he'll have a good time. That kind of stuff as an announcer, and I know we're kind of breaking off Holy Moly for a second, but like if you're if, if you're listening in, you want to be a uh, color commentator or a or a play by play guy or, or or woman, you know, have fun with what you're doing, enjoy it, have the knowledge because that transfers over to the listener, to the viewer, to the audience member. Um, and and Doc Emmerich is has got to be one of the best in the business, if not the best. Yes, he is, and they're, they're great. I also love all the side characters they sort of developed over the course of the two seasons. I mean, Course Marshal Joe is hilarious. Jeannie May, the sideline reporter, is pretty good, and I will say they've done a much better job with Steph Curry's involvement in season two than in season one, because season one, Steph Curry just shows up, hits the golf shot, and leaves. Season two, basically, like, they basically made him a 
he's playing like a like a curb your enthusiasm version of Steph Curry, where he's basically saying these old ridiculous things, and they do cartoons with him. Steph Curry is much funnier season two. Yeah, I think they really um, took advantage of the opportunity to have Steph Curry as a person on that, uh, as a, as an actor or as a talent or a personality on that show. Um, and I think in season one, I they had him as a as a uh, kind of like a celeb shot kind of guy, like you were saying. He takes, you know, he takes a uh, I don't know if you want to call it a chip, but it, I guess it kind of is. He'll yeah. take a shot for the person who gets closest to like, you know, uh, 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 you know, the pin or whatever. Um, but but I think they really capitalized on the opportunity of having him being involved, and I think they pre-recorded a lot of the stuff, and they did a lot of animated work with him prior to or in between his schedule for the NBA. Yeah. Right. So that's obviously something that you have to like worry about um, because he has other obligations. And, and also too, he, he's on a sports team. He can't just make his own schedule. The schedule's a schedule when it comes to practices, games. Um, if he has any endorsement deals, you know, he's got shoots for that. He's got, you know, interviews, uh, you know, a player of his status, he's a busy man. So I think they really capitalized and, and made sure that they got him in as much as possible. And he's funny. He does a good job. Whoever did the writing for him, or if he did his own writing, it, it was it's a fantastic job. Um, and, and, and Course Marshal Joe <laughs> he's, has got to be my spirit animal. Because, <laughs> because the, dude, cause the dude is just, he's helping out everyone, right? And I'm, I'm a helpful kind of guy, I'd like yeah. to think. And, and if you haven't watched season two, there is a particular hole where they have to do a specific dive. Oh, whoever we're, gets we're the highest that score, yeah. Whoever gets the highest score, you get a better pin position, and and we'll, we'll talk about it more when you get to the hole. But Course Marshal Joe has like the funniest thing delivery part of that whole hole. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's mm-hmm. perfect. But we'll we'll talk about more when we get to the specific hole. Yeah, Course Marshal Joe is fantastic, and you brought up Steph. One thing I was thinking about is that he is, that he was probably when they're filming this, like still rehabbing from the ACL from the Achilles injury, so he probably couldn't do as much mm-hmm. physical stuff. That's why. He, I think the only time you see him in live action, he's sitting in the chair. I think all, that's why all the other stuff is animated. Correct. Which that yeah, was- everything else is animated. Um, the ending is animated as well. Yeah. So when people win, you don't see them get the green, you know, plaid jacket and the golden putter. It's it's more of a um, animated uh, animated thing. The only thing that you saw it live was when they did the special Bachelor slash Bachelorette show. Yeah. Which I'm gonna be honest with you, it it had it had its moments, but like. I don't. I can't see how that like added to anything in this. Like, you know, there was a little bit of drama in there that that made me laugh between like the person who finally won and the and the the, the lifeguard, yeah. which I thought was pretty funny at the end. But but like to me, like that didn't really add anything to Holy Moly. I think it was still just a regular episode of Holy Moly, just a different theme. It was just a good collaboration, I guess. Um, uh, or you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but that, yeah, I that everything's animated for him. Yeah, that Bachelor episode which you're talking about where they bring on eight single people to have them compete and then quote unquote have a chance to find love. That was enti- yeah, that was, was en- pretty- that was that was entirely gonna be like cross promotion for the current bachelor season. Since there is none, they kinda had to spin it off like, uh, watch the bachelor highlights. It's a it's a possibility. They were probably trying to get ratings for highlights, right? Yeah. Um, but pretty much that episode was just a boy bracket and a girl bracket, and then the winner of the girl bracket plays against the winner of the boy bracket and they considered that like a date yeah and like all the, the the funniest part of it is is that all these guys and girls are trying to do these holes with obstacles in like dresses and tuxes yeah and I'm, I'm like how are they gonna do this stuff i mean there's one in the hole where they fling you into a pole and you have to try to catch on to it 
and the dude's wearing like a three-piece suit. I'm like, this, he's going to rip the suit. Yeah. Like, there's no way he's coming out of this like either not injured or the suit being intact. Yeah, definitely not. Let's go to some some of our favorite uh, running gags. So, like, I think we have to start with the with the drop with the diving range hole, the one you mentioned before, where basically steam this hole is like before you actually get to putt on the hole, three competitors do a dive and are judged by I forget, it's Greg Luganis. I forget who the second Correct. I forget who the second one is. And uh, I believe I can get the I can get the the, the first name wrong. I think it's Steven Gutenberg. Yeah, it's Steve Gutenberg. The second one, the third Steve Gutenberg, right? And the third is Sir Gove, which is the mascot who basically is like a giant gopher in a costume. And the and he's lo- knighted. He's knighted. His name is Sir Gove. He's Sir Gove, and I love this because every time the third guy is a guy who was a college diver at Purdue named Joey Sifielli yep. or whatever his name is, and. Mm-hmm. I, I he definitely is part of the gay where every time he does tremendous dives, he gets scored horribly and gets thrown out before the actually getting the putt. I love that. Right. And, and the best part is, is everyone is like against him except for Joe Chesapeake. And Joe's like, what does this guy have to do to get a good <laughs> score? And Robert was like, that was horrible. Meanwhile, there he's, per- he's making these dives perfectly. And these people who have never dived in their lives are doing it. And they're getting all these, these like scores and like praised by like, the most famous diver ever, Greg Luganis, and 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 you know a comedy legend Steve Gutenberg. Like like it just it. I think it's hysterical that they that they've made these running gags. Um, you know we I was talking about course Marshall Joe and 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 Sir Go only gives it scores in like emojis. symbols. Yeah, yeah, emojis pretty much. So like it'll be like an acorn or whatever. And no matter what Sir Go puts, they always go to course Marshall Joe for like the ruling, and he always goes. Four. That's yeah. all he does. He, it could be like seventeen different emojis, and he just looks and he goes four. Yeah. And, and and one time Rob was like, "I bet you it's gonna be a four and he goes four. And he's like, "I told you, I told you." And that's like one of the funny, like sarcastic bits that they have. Oh man, I, it's a great idea. It, it, I mean, these things like do a better dive to get a better course position. Like, who thinks of this stuff? Like that. That's a great idea. Yeah, they had a lot more fun with the holes. They really went to town all the holes this time around. And mm-hmm. I, I will say the other funny gag I will joke at is that there's actually a hole this season called Uranus. And Rob Riggle cracks up every time Joe Tessitore says it. It's hysterical. So I am not going – for the viewers uh, – excuse me, the listeners at home, I want you to look up Holy Moly and the put the hole Uranus, right? And just listen to the scripted <laughs> – the scripted – like descriptions that yep. Joe Tessitore has to read every single time and just, and, and listen to it. Like you're a five-year-old kid. Like just honestly, just listen to it. Like with a funny mind, you know, mindset, because it is the funniest description that you could put on cable TV without like getting FCC like involved. Like it's just, it's, it's hysterical. And Rob Riggle has the best expressions as Joe is trying to, read out this description and Joe, the first time he had to read the description out was cracking up himself. Yeah. He couldn't do it. And, and it, uh, that hole in itself, it's not even the hole. It's just the description. Yeah. The way they have to like present it is the funny running gag. So it, phenomenal job by, by, by that production team to make this, this, uh, this show the way it is. Yeah. It's definitely worth a lot. Before we go any further, I do want to have a little fun here. Let's do a, Mini draft here. We'll do. We'll each pick three holes that we want. We want to play on this course, and okay. we're, limited, we're limited to what we've seen through. I think the first eight episodes of the season too. So we haven't seen Steph right. Curry's secret hole yet. That's going to be in the finale. As, as, as well, basically, basically every well, 
basically you what bring up, yeah basically sorry, basically what happens is like the first season was like if you won the final hole you won twenty five thousand dollars but they this this time is like every episode whoever wins advances to the finale and they play for a shot at the final hole which is a secret hole Steph Curry is building and it the, the winning putt is worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars right. So, so top three holes I would like to play, right? That's yeah. the, the what we're doing. Yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna do a draft style. So I'll give you the first choice. What hole are you going first? So, so just remind me too. After we talk about this, I want to talk about Steph Curry's hidden golf uh, course or hole or whatever you want to call. I'll do that now before you forget. Okay. So, so we actually caught a glimpse of it last episode. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone caught that. If anyone's keeping up with Holy Moly, but during like the intro or the, the, the welcome back kind of sizzle reels that they put together to, like, tell you what's going on, you know, what you missed from the commercial, you actually see two pyramids spinning on a hole that you've never seen before, like, in a corner really quickly. Yeah. So I think they kind of flashed that hole a little bit. So I wonder, hopefully it's more advanced than just a couple spinning pyramids, but uh, but it kind of looks like they kind of just, like, gave a little hint as to what it looks like. So so that that's a little Easter egg for you. Last episode that aired um, was, was last Thursday. Uh, yeah, that's it, where you could see it. Yeah, that's there. Also, one thing I forgot with the running gags is, like, whoever does the graphics, they are phenomenal when they put, like, these descriptions of the people competing. It's hilarious. Like, they will give you, like, the most absurd thing in your bio will be your one-liner. Like, Oh, yeah, the, bi- the bio is great. The bios, the are, bios are great. The bios are great. Like, there was, like, I think last year they had a pro golfer, and, like, I think she's called herself Kasha K, and they put, like, Kasha K, like, as her as her bio name, as her, right. as her description. Right. They, they, they definitely have a sense of humor at that show, and I appreciate it. They do. So, now, let's do our hole draft. Where are you picking your first hole you want to play? All right, so, so... So if I pick a hole, does that mean you could pick it as well? How are we doing this? Are we doing this like, like once, a real draft? It's like a real draft. Once you take a hole, I can't take it. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go with hmm, – what hole would I want to play on? Uh, I probably will go with Uranus. That would be the first hole I'd like to play on. Yeah. Why, why that pick? Um, I just I, I think it's cool that you have to shoot it up that huge, huge ramp and try to get it into the hole one kind of like to have like that little area where if you get it, it'll like get you really close to the pin. Um, and then you have to like jump over the plants. I feel like I'd be okay at that. Yeah, I think I think that would be definitely be fun to try. Plus, you can always have the fun with the last about the whole uh, you're playing your rain as you track the ball in the hole. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that, that's a good first pick. I think the I'm trying to think which I would like to do. Like, I would like to try Polcano. Where you basically you put up it was the it was the file hole last that rebranded it basically you yes. you you put your ball into like a plinko thing and you get put in the rough the fairway or the or the uh, the bunker whatever it is and you have to get out there you go down hang glide you have to try and grab a pole on the way down if you don't hit it, it's a one stroke penalty and that's yeah, that looks like that, that looks tough that's tough but it's fun like I would love to be on the hang glide yeah. see see if I did that I'd probably get demolished I'd hit the pole and then just just hit the water with such speed that. Um, I'd lose, you know, I'd lose my head. Uh, no, it's a good, it's a good pick. Sorry. Right, so that's your pick. Yeah. So my second hole would be, is it called dragon's breath? Yes. The one that you get caught on fire. Yep. That one, that one. I, I'd like to do that because, because first of all, you get to ride up on horses, which is, which is probably the most like awesome thing. Like you just ride up on like a white stallion yeah. and then you get off and then you go to putt and then these four dragons just light you on fire. You know, no big deal. Just yeah. light you on fire. I, I, I would like to do that. That seems really cool. 
Yeah, it's, that's something you can't do every day. You can't go to your local mini golf no. course and get lit on fire. No, I mean, I don't condone it. Like, I, I don't <laughs> think, I don't recommend it. I mean, they, they obviously, like, don't try this at home. They obviously have safety precautions. Everyone's wearing, like, fireproof, fireproof suits. Like, they're probably, like, wearing one fireproof suit over another. Like, they walk over and they look like they're wearing those big, like, uh, sumo wrestling, like, fake things. Yeah. You ever see those? Yeah. Um, they're very protected. So definitely don't light yourself on fire while playing mango or ever. Yeah. Just as a little PSA. Yeah. That one, okay, that's your next one. I'm going with hole number two, just for the... that's a good one it's so much fun basically the concept of this hole is you're putting down a narrow strip of land like between the water and a line of porta potties and then once you get through you have to you have two and a half seconds to clear the line as you get whacked and thrown in the water that one just to try and get the sprint would have been would be fun do you think johnny knoxville and steve-o and like bam margera had like a hand in this hole yes for some reason just because it's a porta potty thing and like you get rocked when they open up the door. Like it just reminds me of Jackass. I don't, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> so I feel like, I, I feel like those three definitely had like a say in how that would go. Yeah. I think that one's, that one is fun. And you have one more hole. Where are you going? Okay. So there's a couple holes to choose from. Um, I don't think I'd like to do the diving one. I definitely don't ever want to do the one where they shock the crap out of you. Yeah, if you that, miss the putt. Yeah, you don't. That, like that doesn't one. look fun at all. No. Uh, um, what else do they have? You know, double touch courage. I I I play. The distractor looks like it's hysterical. Yes. Um, easy, easy. Yeah, I'll go distractor. I'll go distractor. Yeah, because the the ridicule is not much. He's making one twelve foot putt. The challenge is they're gonna throw something crazy in your face. And you have to focus. Right. Yeah. I think the one like the. They, the favorite, my favorite distractor moment so far was when they, when they did the fake baseball game around the people. That was funny. The fake baseball game was really good. Yeah. Um, the drill sergeant in season one was really good. Yeah. Um, and the the past episode we had, we had can can dancers, and it yeah. was funny because the the two people participating in the whole joined the people doing the distracting at the end. So yeah. that was pretty funny. Yeah, um, I remember, yeah, I'm going to go with Distractor. Yeah, I remember season one also, there was like a mime for the Distractor, and Rod Riggle was losing his mind, yep. like, oh my god, it's a mime, and that was his personal yeah. laugh. <laughs> he's, he's, like, he's in a box, he can't get out, he can't get out of the box. Yeah, yeah, it was great, and I think there are a couple ops that could go here. I mean, Buns and Wieners is fun, That like I do think that's pretty funny. I I like the one where you have to basically do the, whack, like, ride the mechanical gopher, and, and then you have to put around, yes. the, the, that one's fun. Yes. But I have to go with Double Dutch Courage just because it's so classic. You have, you, every mini golf course you go to, you have to hold the windmill, and you have to run through the windmill too. Sign me up. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. The only problem is this season they added – I don't think they added a whole fan blade. I just think they uh, – excuse me, a whole new fan at the windmill. I think they just added a fan blade to each, so it's harder to get through. Yeah. I think in season one they had the two of them. But I think they added like another one because I guess it was not too easy, but people were getting through it a little yeah. more than they wanted probably. So – I think to get that, you know, factor in the another fan blade so that you can get hit and get thrown in the water. Yeah, I think they what it was, I think they had one windmill, but then they added a second windmill and a blade to the first windmill. So I think they added two things. Oh, is that it? Okay, maybe. That's why they call it double dutch courage now. Yeah, maybe. Maybe maybe. Yeah, so that I think that was fun. I would love to play those holes and before we go And I'd love and yeah. I'll love to play uh Tomb of Nefertiti because I haven't seen it yet and I'm sure it's a doozy. I'm right? Sure. Like I'm sure they're making the final hole to be yeah. like really hard. So yeah. also we have, we have to mention also before we get to our last thing here, I love that they have John Lovett in a pirate suit, like chipping balls this year. That's hilarious. 
the amount of talent they've gotten for this show <laughs> is ridiculous. Yeah. I, I what is it? What is it? Captain it's Long, Long John Lovett. It's Long John Lovett. Yeah. <laughs> they blindfold the dude and he still makes the chip. I can never do that. Yeah. I can't do it with one eye patch or both off. Like I, I that's amazing. No, he, he's, um, I wish he had more speaking parts. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I wish he had more like freedom to like talk. I do. But, too. They, they, he doesn't really say much. He just kind of yeah. just says, "You can walk the plank," or yeah. like he says, "You know, you're first or something." Yeah, I think he he'd be fun. And for last thing with this holy moly thing, well, that's the fun with this. Give me one athlete you want to see play, it, and give me somebody in our podcast universe you want to see play this this uh, show. I thought about this a lot. The one athlete I'd like to see play this is Shaq. <laughs> Only because to see him perform any of the obstacles is probably a treat. Yeah. Um, and the other person in this podcast between me, besides me and you, would be John Stanko. Yes. <laughs> because I know John Stanko. I know John Stanko loves himself some golf, but I also know his reactions are priceless. And I feel like if we could get him on that golf course with us and him get like into the water a couple of times, I, and all of us just have a you know some commentary to it, I feel like we'd have a blast. Yeah, Stanko's a great pick. The athlete, I just imagine Shaq trying to do a hole number two. That would be funny. Uh, yeah, no, but here's the problem, though. If Shaq does hole number two, whoever opens the porta potty door that's going to hit him, he's going to barrel through it and throw the guy <laughs> into the porta potty. Like, Shaq is way too strong and big for that to ha- for him to go into the water. So, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, like, something like Buns and Wieners would be funny. Double yeah. Dutch Courage would be funny, you know, to see him play. Uh, yeah, they, about- I think... What about Shaq and Dragon's Breath? Like breathing fire on him? No, I feel like Shaq would be good. I feel like he'd be cool. Maybe the shocking one. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't. I feel like anyone that does, like I would never do it, but I feel like anyone that does it would be funny. Yeah, I think for me, I think the athlete has to be Charles Barkley. Just imagine Charles doing all of these. I'd be funnier than Shaq. Can we get them both? Can we like yeah. get them like both on the same course? Like, do just can we get like a whole episode dedicated to Shaq and Charles Barkley? Yes, and that- like. And just, like, have them argue, like, about how they should do the hole, right? Yeah. Like, just have them go back and forth, like, no, no, you got to hit over here. No, 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 you have to hit over Like, I just want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, obviously, I think Stanko's a great pick from our podcast universe. Trying to think of who else would be fun in this in this setting. I think, like, getting Joe D. Frazzle would be funny on this. Joe D. Frazzle would be funny. Uh, maybe Will Schneiderhan, maybe. Yeah. Schneider. Um, I don't think who else, like. I think Sandro's would be funny. I feel like all can we just all go? Can like we get that going? <laughs> can we just can we do it? Yeah, just them the suffering podcast, like holy moly edition. Like can we yeah. do that? Yeah, I mean we can get enough people in there. We can get like six of us. All right, wait, eight of us. Wait, can I propose something? Like this yeah. is for real. You sure. Once things calm down with COVID, vaccine treatment, whatever, and people can comfortably go out and do stuff. Can we get the Just Out in the Suffering podcast crew to do a vlog at a mini golf course <laughs> and just play against each other? Yeah, we got like getting can getting we, it down to like do a, that? a group of like eight is gonna be hard, but like once we could narrow it down, we could do it. We can do. It. We could just we could do me, you, Stanko, and Joe D at first, and then we can start adding people. Yeah, like we can just do like like that. Oh my god, how fantastic would that be? That'd that, be hysterical. That would be fun, and I think I like a lot of these people. I think John Stanko is the clear winner though from our podcast universe. Uh, yeah, no, I I, I agree. All right, Pete, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people find on social media? Keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's it's COVID season, I guess, if you want to call it. Uh, so I've just been on Twitter, 
retweeting at PJ Contadori 29. You want to follow me on Instagram, uh, Peter J392. Got a lot of hockey posts, uh, personal hockey posts from me and my team. Um, I like to retweet a lot on Twitter. So, yeah, give me a follow. All right. Thanks, Pete. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, man. It was a lot of fun. All right. And there you have it. That was Pete Contadori talking. A little holy moly on this week's podcast. Up next, the return of a two-minute drill. We're going to talk about the latest disaster of a day in Midland right after our brand-new two-minute drill bumper. The two-minute drill. All right, two-minute drill time. And the Mets, I feel it's going to be talking about actual sports again, but the Mets on Sunday had a very Metsian day, which I'm getting sick of discussing some of these. The day starts off, you know, they're on a four-game losing streak. The baseball stuff, which turned out to be the smallest thing of the day. The Mets start the day, you know, they make a trade for Billy Hamilton to add another defensive outfit to their roster. And think, okay, this is not a bad idea. The Mets don't value defense enough. We've seen the entire weekend in Atlanta how balls are flying over J.D. Davis's head in left field. Dom, like, uh, Donald Smith is playing left field and not, not to great success. Brandon Nimmo is not long in center field. He should be in the corners. They even had a tough spot because Jake Marais, they went on the IL. Okay, you can see the logic in it. They traded their 14th ranked prospect for a guy in Billy Hamilton that they could have signed off the street for nothing. That is awful, and it's the latest sign that the Mets ownership, literally their cheapest, has really hamstrung this club's operations for the, for the short and the long term. The... Trade of Billy Hamilton for Jordan Humphreys. Their 14th ranked prospect. Somebody they had in the 40-man roster in DFA last week to make room for somebody. Humphreys is now the sixth prospect they have traded the past two years to try and find a replacement for Juan Lagares. They traded three this offseason for Jake Marisnik, who's who basically was defensive replacement for a week before he got hurt and has a hamstring injury. He's on the IL right now. They traded two to Milwaukee last year for Keon Broxton. That experiment lasted about, like, a month and a half before he got cut. Those are six usable prospects for a guy you sign on the street for like $3 million in free agency. Why don't the Mets do that? Because the Mets ownership does not have enough money to let you fill a complete roster. And to say none, they want you to try and win. Or they at least give you the illusion of winning in order to sell tickets, which seems to be the moment of this. We have a GM like Brody Van Wagen who's in his first job trying to impress. What's he going to do? He's going to cut some corners. These prospects are not going to help you a couple of years, but, you know, Jake Marais can help me today. Billy Howell can help me today. I got to get him. Whereas if you would just sign Billy Howell in the offseason, if you liked him enough to trade for him, obviously you could have signed him. If you signed him to a one-year deal, gave him like $3 million, you still have four prospects in your system that you could use to address other needs. Instead of trading six prospects over two years trying to place Juan Lagares, who, by the way, is in the Met player pool. They signed him back as an early free agent. The Padres cut him. He's been in at the altar site in Brooklyn. They traded six guys to replace one guy, and that guy's still in the organization. That's an awful job. This is trading prospects. has been very short-sighted. The Mets also do this with the whole, okay, we're going to trade for a guy to help us fill a hole for next year. Remember A.J. Ramos in 2018? They traded for him to help him in 19. That was a disaster. Last year, trade for Marcus Strowman to replace Zach Wheeler. That has not quite worked out either. And before we hear, oh, Zach Wheeler got overpaid. That was a smart move. You know what? For a New York team, it should not be either or. It should not be 
well, we have to pick either Stroman or Wheeler. The Mets could have had both. The fact that you have people arguing against that is just clear delusion. And the fact that they've been sold a line of goods that this is something a mid-market team does. The Mets are not a mid-market team. They play in the biggest market in New York City. They have a TV station that generates tremendous revenue. And they have a very nice ballpark. This is poor financial management. And this is hopefully something that will disappear when the new ownership takes over. Another thing I'd like to see disappear when the new ownership takes over is the complete ineptitude over situations on Sunday. Like happened with the OSS, but it is. I mean, you're watching the game. He's not in the lineup. You're like, okay. Now you got the day off. In the middle of the first inning, they give a statement out there from Brody Van Wagenen who says, Joanna Cespedes did not show up to the ballpark. Our attempts to reach him have been unsuccessful. It's basically saying, he's missing. We can't find him. And at that point, your mind goes to the worst place in the world. You're like, oh my God, did something happen to him? Is he sick? Like, did he get in an accident? Because usually when you hear somebody did not show up to the park, that's not good. Then in the about an hour later, we hear, He's safe, but they don't know where he is. And you're like, huh? You're like, that makes no sense. And then word starts leaking out that he's opted out. Brody goes on after the game, says, Yoannis didn't need to opt out. They sent security to his hotel room. The room was packed up. All this stuff was gone. He was gone. And then the agent told them he has opted out. And that's the end of the Yoannis Cespedes era with the Mets. Let's get one thing clear here. First with Cespedes. Great player in 15. Very good in 16. Not worth the contract. If he wants to opt out over COVID concerns, obviously, that's his prerogative. You can't blame anyone for opting out. But at the same time, my one criticism here is, is you cannot up and disappear in the middle of the night. Have your agent tell somebody. Tell Brody. Tell Rojas. Tell your teammates. Say, you know what? I'm done. I'm opting out. See you guys later. You can't up and disappear. That's a bad job by Ioannis. But the Mets also did bad here. Number one, that statement did not need to be released when it did. They should have had more information before they released him. This is sports. You can lie about it for a couple hours. And maybe ask, say, oh, like, he was not available today. We sat him with this mashup, so on and so forth. Nobody would have questioned you until you had the facts. And it turns out they had the facts in time for postgame. You could have addressed it then. That's problem number one. Problem number two, Brody Van Wagen's defense of this was, we wanted to be transparent. So that's why we told you about Cespedes. This felt a lot more like the front office trying to control the narrative instead of actually being transparent because the statement they put out, as as pointed out by several reporters, including Mike Vaccaro, Mark Carrig, Disha Thosar, all of them basically pointed out that why did you put out an incomplete statement when you didn't have all the information? Being transparent is good. Let's not think I'm wrong. But... You should have the facts before you are being transparent about it. Like, if Ioannis is not there, you could have put out a in the middle of the game and said, okay, he's not here. He has chosen to opt out of the season. That's all you need to know. You can address it after the game fully, but creating panic over this was completely the wrong move. And then this is where the claims they value transparency, but at the same time as today. You also cannot be claiming transparency when Brody hops off the, the Zoom call with six reporters waiting for questions for him. You cannot claim transparency when your hitters go one for 15 in front of scoring position. You make none of them available to the media. The only player that made available was pitcher David Peterson, who obviously is not in no position to answer those questions about why the bats didn't come through in big spots. You cannot do that. And 
in an age where reporters can't go in the locker rooms to ask the players. This is all on the team. So the Mets are not being transparent with those players. And as usual, the Sasser situation concludes with the obligatory hit piece coming out of the New York Post talking about how he's disgruntled, he's not happy with the money, he doesn't like where he's hanging the lineup from sources within the Mets. This is, again, very bad look. You cannot be you cannot be happy he left. That's fine. You don't need a hit piece out in the post three hours after his, after the game saying, here's why he might have left. Not even that, oh, this is why he left. Like, this might be why he left, to make themselves look better. These kinds of games have been going on for years, and I'm really sick of the anonymous leaking, the justification to cover their butts, how we're in the right, you're in the wrong. Yoannis was wrong. Yoannis was wrong to opt out and not tell you. You could have had that victory and walked away and said, okay, we are concerned about the player. We obviously respect his right to opt out. We wish he would have done it a better way and just left it alone. The leak job coming out is typical Mets. I'm sick of this garbage, and I cannot wait for new ownership to clean this up, get rid of the filth, and just move on here. Just clean up, clean house, get a new organization that acts like adults, one that spends like a proper New York team and is not cutting corners to try and win. The fact that 3-7 and seven is not helping my mood right now, but the Mets are better than this. They really are. And they should be behaving more like a competent baby organization, not one who's obsessed with winning the back pages and trying to prove that they are right when they're not. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Andy Martini, for coming on to talk about the PGA Tours, return to play, and preview the PGA Championship this week. I also want to thank Pecan Store for spending some time talking to you about the goofiness that is Holy Moly. That's definitely a fun show. I definitely recommend it to all of you who have not checked it out yet. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at how Tom Thibodeau's arrival with the Knicks could impact their approach to trying to win sooner rather than later, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can find all our episodes there, including... I had a stretch where I had about five episodes out in about 10 days. A lot of them were good. Check all those out on the archives. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Individual conversation of every episode are going up there right now, including our conversation with Dan and Pete. will both be on YouTube in just a little bit. Feedback and star ratings are very important as well. They mean a lot to me. It help make the podcast even better going forward. So please, if you have a chance, leave a feedback, leave a star rating. It'll make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. We're going with hashtag transparency made at the end of this week's podcast. Rob Manfred could use some. The Mets could use some. Hashtag transparency for this week's podcast. And coming up next week on the podcast, we're going to check in with the baseball beat. So we're going to see this still going by then. We'll talk to them, do some game shows with Panda Rosa and more. Until then, I'll be a better week than Met fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.